0: So go ahead and open up your your Bibles to the book that bears my name, chapter (laughs) 9, verses 15 through 19 is our passage today. This message is titled, A Man of True and Vibrant Prayer, part 2. As you remember, last week, Pastor Joe began with uh, part 1. He covered the first three quarters of the prayer, and I had started thinking in advance about my portion of Scripture and how I would teach it organizing, outlining a sermon in my head. And I come to church last week and he says, I took both of our passages, all 19 verses, and I outlined it. And I'm thinking, this is great. If your pastor outlines your sermon for you, you take it, you accept it. But then he says to me, there's six points. I get five, you get one. Like, oh, you're not really leaving me a lot to work with. This might be a very short sermon. But hey, as it turns out, this is arguably the greatest point of them all. This is the point that all the other points are directing our hearts to. And as I think of this passage, I have so much joy within me. I have been chomping at the bit to come preach this to you. By way of reminder, we saw last week that Daniel's prayer teaches us what true prayer is. We saw five points covered by Pastor Joe that true prayer is driven by the Word of God. True prayer is devoted to the will of God. It's determined to repent before God, dependent on the forgiveness of God. It declares the righteous discipline of God. And lastly, the sixth point today, true prayer is dedicated to the glory of God. And in this final point, Daniel is going to show us how the glory of God is foremost in his mind. And we're going to learn how we can dedicate our prayers to the glory of God By noting six aspects of Daniel's prayer, we're going to see that God's glory is displayed in contrast to man's defiance. It's displayed in his righteousness. It's displayed in his grace. It's displayed in our dependence upon him. It's displayed in his unique works, and it will be displayed in all the earth. Let's go ahead and begin. I want to read the entire passage. I think it's fitting to get the prayer in our hearts and in our minds. Let's begin in verse 1. Daniel says this in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the seed from the seed of the Medes, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, discerned in the books the number of the years concerning which the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah, the prophet for the fulfillment of the laying waste of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I gave my face to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to Yahweh my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him and keep His commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity and acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from Your commandments and judgments. Moreover, we have not listened to your slaves, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have banished them. Because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you. O Yahweh, to us belongs open shame. To our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. Nor have we listened to the voice of Yahweh our God to walk in His laws, which He put before us through His slaves, the prophets. Indeed, All Israel has trespassed against your law, even turning aside, not listening to your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath, which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against him. Thus he has established his words, which he had spoken against us and against our judges who judged us to bring on us great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem." As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not entreated the favor of Yahweh our God by turning from our iniquity and acting wisely in your truth. Therefore, Yahweh has watched over the calamity and brought it on us. For Yahweh our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not listened to his voice. So now, O Lord our God, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day. We have sinned. We have acted wickedly. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteousness, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. So now... Our God, listen to the prayer of your slave and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and listen. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any righteousness of our own, but on account of your abundant compassion. O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, give heed and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. As we begin to look at this prayer of Daniel's, we're going to learn how we can dedicate our prayers to the glory of God. And we begin by considering that in Daniel's prayer, the glory of God is first. In this petition displayed in contrast to man's defiance. Now, verse 15, it says, So now, and this marks the beginning of his actual petition. Prior to this, he'd been confessing sins. But he says, So now, and he begins by highlighting the greatness of God. He says, Oh Lord, our God. In comparison to all the, the gods of the pagans, the false God, Yahweh was the one who had a strong hand. He was the one that was able to break down the Egyptian army, to break down the Egyptians with the plagues of the Exodus event. He was the one that was able to overthrow horse and rider in the Red Sea and destroy their army all the while his people passed through on dry land. Daniel says, that's you. You did that, God. You made a name for yourself in delivering your people. And the nations around Israel, they knew who their God was. They understood who Yahweh was. They saw his power. They didn't know him personally, but they saw his works. They saw that he delivered his people, and they understood that he was the God who can deliver out of the hands of the most fearsome enemies. The Song of Moses actually brings this truth up. It expresses this reality in exalting the greatness and the majesty of God in his work of deliverance. It says this, Who is like you among the gods, O Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, fearsome in praises, working wonders. You stretch out your hand, the earth swallowed them up. And then it goes on to say this, The peoples have heard they tremble. Anguish has seized the inhabitants of Philistia. The chiefs of Edom were dismayed. The leaders of Moab, trembling, seizes them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are as still as stone. This is why Daniel could say, you have made a name for yourself. In saving his people, God glorified himself among the nations so that they feared. The neighbors would look on Israel and they would fear their God. The intention was that they would fear their God, knowing that he was great and above all so-called gods. And Daniel goes on, he adds, as it is this day. The Lord had established his reputation would ultimately uphold it. But though for a time the people sinned, they were scattered, they were exiled, they were dispersed, But Daniel knew that in the end God would ultimately make his name great among the nations still. In this prayer, Daniel is concerned with exalting God and showing that he is the Most High God. There's no one like Yahweh. There is no one who delivers with a mighty hand as their God has done. And he began his prayer back in verse 4. He said, Lord, you are the great and awesome God. That's who you are. You are so great. There is no one like you. And Daniel's saying, that's our God. He's amazing. He's made a name for himself. That's who we, he's our God. But as he elevates his God, he then goes on and he contrasts the greatness of God with this defiance, the sinfulness of him and his people. He says, we have sinned. We have acted wickedly. As God is exalted in Daniel's mind, as he's petitioning, God, you are so great. Daniel is utterly baffled that him and his people could sin against so great a God. And the fact that they transgressed him, This utterly broke Daniel down. He's already brought this theme up elsewhere in his prayer multiple times. He said in verse 7 that Israel committed unfaithful deeds against you. We have sinned against you. We have rebelled against you. Israel has trespassed against your law. We have sinned against you in verse 11. God also expresses a similar amazement at the reality that people would sin against him in Hosea. He said of Ephraim, he says, Woe to them, for they have fled from me. They have transgressed against me. They speak lies against me. They devise evil against me. What an amazing thought that sinful man can so defiantly transgress against the Most High God. You know that it is in beholding the glory of God that we obtain A more accurate view of the depths of our sin? Have you come to realize that? You kind of recognize that the the clearer that you see God in His glory, the more sinful your sin becomes? Daniel saw this and he was devastated by the fact that they could do such a thing. How do you measure your sin? How do you measure sin in general? We say that sin is bad and, and it is, but compared to what? What is sin? bad in comparison to how sinful is sin. We can evaluate our lives and look at those around us and try and stack ourselves up against them. This is what Paul's rivals did in 1 Corinthians. He said they measure themselves by themselves. They compare themselves with themselves. Now, when it comes to evaluating sin in your life, it's actually a really convenient trick to make yourself look better if you're Curious? You can surround yourself with uh, bad people and look really good. A Pharisee in Luke 18 did this. He said in his prayer, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, we can go around and we can compare ourselves to people, and depending on who we are compared to, we can look really good or we can look really bad. We can match up well or not so much. And if you want to look really good, just find the worst people you can. Surround yourself with them. And on a side note, completely unrelated, I'm looking for someone to go to lunch with me today. I have very uh, specific (laughs) qualifications, people I invite. No, maybe that's why Joe keeps inviting me to go to lunch with them. (laughs) He always says, you always make me feel so good about myself every time we meet." Like, no, no. But we can measure ourselves against other people. And perhaps, just maybe... Maybe there's someone in the world who's as big a sinner as I am, and I'm going to go find him, and I'm going to compare myself to him. I'm going to look so good. But even if I did, if there was someone worse than me, it wouldn't matter because that person, people are not the standard. God in his glory is the standard. Romans 3, 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the standard. Daniel starts by highlighting God's greatness, God's glory, exalting and lifting him up. You are a mighty God who delivers his people and we have sinned against you. That's what we've done. That's how terrible it is. And in this, Daniel saw the exceeding sinfulness of his sin. As God's greatness and glory is displayed in contrast to our sin and defiance, it only serves to increase the divide in your hearts and in your minds between who he is And who we are. We see Him more clearly. We understand His glory better and better the lower we become before Him. The smaller we become before Him. He is elevated higher in our hearts and in our minds. We see that we are great sinners, but He is a great God. Others in the Bible recognize this truth. Isaiah, he said, In the year uh, that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. Then he goes on and says... Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. That is amazing. He saw God, and his only response was, I am sinful. I am so sinful. And this comparison, this contrast shows the depths of our sin and how horrible it is to transgress against such a great God. Job knew this at the end of his book. He's speaking with the Lord and says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I reject myself. I repent in dust and ashes. That should have been the response of the people of Israel. That was the response of Daniel. Paul also knew this. In one of his earlier letters, he said that I am the least of all the apostles. He said that small group of Man, he says, I'm at the bottom. That's kind of like me in the sojourner's teaching lineup. I'm the least of... Some of you guys are laughing a little too hard here. (laughs) Come on now. I'm going to go home and rethink my life. (laughs) He says, I'm the least of all the apostles. Later on in his life, he said, I'm the very least of all the saints. Not just that elite group of men, but all believers. And then even further on, he says, it's a trustworthy saying. And deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost. I'm the chief of all sinners. Now what are we thinking here? What do we see as Paul's life progressed? He sees himself lower and lower and lower. Can we say that he sinned more and more and became worse and worse? Of course not. As he walked with the Lord, he would have been more Christ-like at the end of his life than earlier on. But what happened is he got a more clear view. He beheld the glory of God in the face of Christ, and he was brought all the more lower. God's glory was thus exalted higher and higher. Going back to Daniel, as the glory of God is his primary focus in this prayer, he shows that it is displayed in contrast to the defiance of man, and this teaches us how we can dedicate our prayers to the glory of God. And we need to recognize this in our prayers to put us in our rightful place before him if we're going to glorify Him. Not only that, we also learn to dedicate our prayers to God's glory because in this prayer we see that God's glory is displayed in His righteousness. Verse 16, O Lord, in accordance with all your righteousness, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. And he goes on to plead that God would turn his anger and wrath away from them, but he bases it upon God's righteousness. He says, in accordance with all of your righteousness. This term, righteousness, in Hebrew, it denotes a state or quality of something that, is, that meets a recognized standard of what is right. It's being and acting in the correct way. And we just saw that God is the standard. He is perfect. If you want to be perfect, you need to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is a standard we need to live. If we want to be perfect, we need to live the way God would live, think the way He would think, and speak the way He would speak. And Daniel also recognized that God is perfect in all of His ways. He says, Notice, He says, according to all your righteousness. There's nothing that God has ever done or will do that is not absolutely right. See, Daniel and his people, they're exiled, they're scattered, they are dispersed, they are suffering. And they're suffering the consequence of their sin that God has brought upon them. They've suffered a horrific reality and it was all because they didn't listen to him and he punished them for that. Daniel said, it's because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people have become a reproach. And Daniel knew that while they sat languishing in captivity, God remained righteous in it all. He was good in everything he did. He knew that was the correct response to the sin of the people. And God's commitment to His covenant included not only giving blessings for obedience, but also pouring out the curse for disobedience. He referenced that back in verse 11. He said, uh, The curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses. Deuteronomy 28 spells out the curses that would come if Israel failed to uphold the covenant. They did, and they suffered for it, and they became a reproach. The Lord told them in Deuteronomy that He would make them an object of horror, a proverb, a byword among the peoples where the Lord your God drives you. Jeremiah would go on and pick up on that terminology. And he would repeat that term, object of horror, multiple times in his book. And he added that they would also become a waste. The land would become a waste place. They are suffering. This is what happened. Daniel, the captives, they saw this. This was the anger and the wrath of God against His people. These two words, they make up a very lethal combination. If God directs His anger and wrath against you, you're toast. It's like the divine one-two punch that it would take a divine act of God to get you up front. God says He would pour out His anger and wrath, and He did. But notice, as we consider all of this, Daniel appeals to the righteousness of God in order that he might relent. He recognizes that God is good for everything that he did. He recognizes that the judgment was just and right. But he says this, O Lord, in accordance with all your righteousness, let now your anger and your wrath turn away. Based on your righteousness, let it go from us. How can Daniel plead with God to do the right thing In turning away his wrath, well, it's because he knew that God was their Yahweh was their covenant God. He had made a commitment to them. He had promised them. He had made a covenant with them to do them good for their sake. And here Daniel is pleading with God to make good on that commitment. He is pleading with God to follow through with that promise. He also knew from reading in Jeremiah that they would be exiled for seventy years that God would bring them back to the land after that time. He read Jeremiah 25:11. He read Jeremiah 29:10. And here Daniel calls upon the Lord as the faithful and covenant-keeping God to do what he said. Be righteous. Uphold your promise. Daniel's prayer is based upon the word of God. His prayer is based upon the righteous character of God. And as the righteousness of God is emphasized, In our prayers, His glory is displayed as well. We can pray for His praise. We can pray to glorify Him. We need to recognize that first He is right in all that He does and that His working is in accord with His holy name. Going on, our third reality, the third aspect of Daniel's prayer that we see is that in Daniel's prayer, God's glory is displayed In his grace. Verse 17. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your slave and to his supplications, and for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. Daniel has asked the Lord that he might turn his anger away from them based on his righteousness. But here he pleads that God would even listen. Lord, hear me. O God, listen to the prayer. Of your slave. Essentially, he is looking entirely to God to be gracious to them. He's saying, in a sense, uh, in, in essence, he's saying, You don't have to hear my prayer. You don't have to hear my supplication, but please do, Lord. Please do. Please hear me. Daniel here is placing himself entirely at the mercy of God's grace. He's saying, Lord, be gracious to us and hear my prayer he says, my supplication, that word supplication, at the root of it, it's the root for grace. God be gracious to us, our plea for grace. He doesn't demand that God hear him. He doesn't come and name it and claim it in some prideful, boastful way. God, do this. I can command God, as some false teachers have claimed. No, you don't do that. Daniel presented himself as the slave of God. I am your slave. Lord, please hear my prayer. And he also asked that God would hear him for your sake, for your sake. Daniel's primary focus in this prayer is the glory of God. The people were devastated. They were made to be a reproach among all the nations. The worst thing in Daniel's mind is that Israel's neighbor would look on their condition and look at what they're suffering and ridicule their God, mock their God, that the pagans wouldn't recognize that Yahweh is holy and completely sovereign over all the nations, over all. And they look and say, he can't even preserve his own people. And Daniel is grieved over this, for your sake, God, act, hear, listen to my prayer. And Daniel pleads that God would be gracious and, in order to uphold his honor, he based his appeal completely on God's honor and his glory. And he added this: He says, "O oh Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary." He borrows the words of the Aaronic blessing found in Numbers chapter six, and he asks that God's face would shine on them, would shine on the sanctuary. This phrase, it describes God looking favorably upon somebody, being gracious to them, letting the the light of His grace and favor shine on them. Daniel here is pleading for this, and he's asking God be kind to us. I want you to listen to the Aaronic blessing that God commanded Aaron and his sons to pronounce over the people. Numbers chapter 6, they were to say this, Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make His face shine on you And be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his face on you and give you peace. That is what they were to pray over the people. That is what is ultimately in the heart of God for his people. And Daniel is crying out, Be gracious to us, shine upon us. There is no claim here made by Daniel that would merit such a favorable position, such a favorable disposition by the Lord. They didn't deserve such a status, but Daniel sought it nevertheless. This actually, it reminds me of David's prayer. If you remember when David sinned and, uh, with Bathsheba and he had, his, he had um, her husband put to death, after all is said and done, Nathan confronts him and David repents and he records his prayer and that prayer is found in Psalm 51. I want you to listen to what he said. You can turn there if you want. Psalm 51. I probably should have prepared for that. I didn't plan on having you in there, but here we are. <laughs> First one, he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. He begins this prayer by... Saying, God, I need grace. This prayer of confession, is prayer of repentance. God, I need your grace. That's where I'm starting at. That's where I begin. But then he goes on. Listen to this. Verse 8. Having confessed all his sins. Sorry, not verse 8. Having confessed all my sins. Verse 4. Against you. Go back to verse 3. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before you. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like Daniel's prayer? We have sinned against you. He starts by asking for grace, and then he confesses that he has transgressed against the Most High God, and then he goes to verse 8. Listen to what he says. This is amazing. Make me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones which you have crushed rejoice. What an amazing prayer. What an amazing request. God, I am sinful. I don't deserve any of your favor, but Lord, give me joy. Rejoice my heart. Restore me. Renew me. I don't deserve it, but make me hear joy and gladness. What an amazing request. David knew the heart of God that God is gracious, that God is long-suffering, that God is kind to the most undeserving of us all, and that enabled him to make that request. This is actually a truth that I love to use in counseling when I deal with the believer who's struggling with sin, who is wondering, can God be gracious to me? Yes, he can. And I love to point them to David. I love to encourage them to pray in this manner so that they might come to know the heart of God like David did. When I think about David's prayer, it's interesting. I always think about what did Bathsheba think when she heard this, right? Make me hear joy. Are you kidding me? What? You want to be joyful, David? You ruined my life. You killed my husband. You wrecked me all for your own pleasure. And you're asking for joy and gladness? Are you kidding me? can only imagine her thoughts. Maybe she's a little spicy like I am, but I don't know. Maybe she wasn't. Maybe she was very gracious too. Doubt it. But David knew that even though he acted wickedly, David knew that even though he didn't deserve any favor from God, he could still call upon a gracious God and find mercy. David knew this. Daniel knew this. We need to know this. Have you meditated on this reality in your prayers? If you truly want to glorify God, you cannot do so apart from recognizing His grace, His free and unmerited favor towards you. Next, we see that the glory of God is displayed in our dependence. Verse 18, O oh my God, incline your ear and listen. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any righteousness of our own, but on account of your abundant compassion. O oh Lord, listen. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, give heed and take action. Again, Daniel pleads that the Lord would hear him, and in so doing, he evidences his complete dependence upon God. With the words, O oh my God, Daniel not only reiterated the intimacy of his relationship with the Lord, but also the urgency of his plea for him to act. Do you hear the desperation coming out in Daniel's voice? The longing for the Lord to take, place, uh, to take action? He's crying out and saying, "Oh God! Can you hear it? This sense that's coming out in his plea it's come out multiple times it characterizes his prayer. Verse 15, "O oh Lord, our God." Verse 16, "O oh Lord, let your anger and your wrath turn from us." Verse 17, "O oh Lord, let your face shine." Verse 18, "O oh my God, incline your ear and listen." Verse 19, "O oh Lord, listen. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, give heed and take action, O oh Lord." He is crying out. He is desperate for God to incline his ear to him. He is dependent upon him. This plea for God to hear is the picture of someone bending their ear down to hear more closely, more clearly. He's saying, Lord, stoop down and condescend to hear my prayer. And he asked for him to open his eyes and see their desolations. They were devastated. They were scattered. They were persecuted. They were demoralized. They were impoverished. They had no strength to deliver themselves or restore their former glory. They had no power over the enemy nations. They were completely helpless, and as Daniel considered their situation, he prayed to the only one who could remedy their circumstances. You see, God was very familiar, though, with what was going on. But Daniel requests and says, "'Lord, open your eyes and see.'" And this request is equivalent uh, to asking God to act. Lord, act in our behalf. That the Lord would look upon his city, and then, which was called by his name, and then be moved with compassion. The city Jerusalem was associated with the name of God. His temple was there. The throne was there. He'd one day rule from there. His fame was linked with the city of Jerusalem. Solomon, in 1 Kings 8, he prayed. He said this concerning the foreigner who is not your people israel if he comes from a far country for your name's sake for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched arm so if he comes and prays towards this house listen in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all that the foreigner calls to you in order that the peoples of the earth may know your name to fear you as do your people israel and to know that your name is called upon this house which I have built. The city, the temple, it was linked with the name of God. It was linked with his, with who he was, his acts, his works, his character. And Daniel asked God, look at your city and be moved with compassion, Lord. We're completely depending on you to save us. But notice also that he says, we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any righteousness of our own. We've already seen that Daniel trusted completely in the, the grace of God. And he asked that the Lord uh, would, would move and be favorable to them, not based on anything in them. There's no merit that would deter, uh, would, would uh, gain such a favor that was found in Daniel, their people. And having no confidence in themselves to turn to, he says, we are presenting our supplications before you. Literally, We are causing our plea for grace to fall before you. The image is of casting a request on the ground before a king and showing abject humility and reliance entirely on his goodwill. They had no righteousness in themselves to barter with God. They couldn't base their claims on anything found in themselves. If they were to be saved, it was due to something outside of themselves, something that didn't originate within them. And it sounds like the Apostle Paul when he said that he wanted to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness which is uh, of his own, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God upon faith. He didn't want a righteousness of his own because he knew that our righteousness is as filthy rags. Our righteousness isn't righteousness. And he knew that none are righteous, no, not one. There's actually a phrase that the Reformers used to speak of the righteousness that Paul sought after. And it was this, it was an alien righteousness, emphasizing that it was something from outside of us, something that didn't originate from within us. This is the righteousness that comes from God and it's imputed to us through the life of Christ, from the life of Christ. That's the only righteousness that a believer can claim. And Daniel looked outside of himself and he prayed and he depended completely on God to show compassion, that word compassion its used with reference to a mother's love. A deep empathy that a father has for his own. And the compelling sense of care that one has for the helpless. He's saying, be compassionate to us. We are helpless. We are depending entirely upon you. Israel is empty. They're empty of righteousness. They're empty of merit. They're empty of strength. But God is full. He is abounding abounding in compassion, grace, and mercy. They are little. He is big. They can't, but He can. And we need to pray in the same manner if we want to glorify our God in our prayers. Moving on, we see that in Daniel's prayer, God's glory is displayed in showing forth His unique works. Verse 19 again, O Lord, listen. O Lord, forgive. Daniel is aware that what the people needed most wasn't just physical deliverance. It wasn't physical deliverance that they needed foremost. They needed forgiveness. They needed to be forgiven of their sins. And the word forgive, it refers to a pardon that God uniquely grants. Only God is able to atone for sins. Only he is able to remove them from you and me. On the day of atonement, the high priest, he was commanded to take two goats and present them before the Lord And cast lots, and for one, the lot fell to be sacrificed. It fell to Yahweh. They were to sacrifice that that goat and sprinkle its blood. But on the other one, it fell to it. It was to remain alive. And the, the priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat and confess the iniquities of the people over that goat. And he would lay them on the head of the goat. And then that goat would be sent alive out into the wilderness, portraying the removal of sins. In the New Testament, what did John the Baptist say when he saw Jesus coming? Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. He can take your sin away. He can take our sin away. He can take the sin of Israel away. Daniel knew that, and only he can do that. The Bible teaches us that God made Jesus, him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The sins of his people were imputed to Christ and he suffered the wrath of God in our place for them. He bore the penalty that was rightly due to us and in so doing, he removed our guilt, he removed our sin. I love Colossians 2, it says, verses 13 and 14, and you being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him, having graciously forgiven all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. He nailed our sins to the cross. He removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. This is a work that only God can do. Daniel prays and asks this unique work, this unique work of God in its of foremost importance. This aspect of Daniel's prayer should be in the forefront of our minds when we pray. If you really want to glorify God, you need to recognize that He is the one who can do only for us what... He, he's the only one who can do for us what we need. Take away our sins, to be our Savior, to remove the stain of sin. If that wasn't the case, we could look somewhere else. We could find another Savior. We could pray to somebody else, but there isn't. There's no one else you can go to. That's how we pray to God. Peter captured this idea... When after the multitudes of Jesus' disciples turned away from him because of some hard sayings that he had made, Jesus asked Peter, do you want to depart and go away too? What did he say? Where else am I going to go? <laughs> you have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere I can turn. That's the heart of prayer that glorifies God. There's nowhere else that we can go to find life, to find forgiveness. And so when we pray God, pray to God and to glorify him, We want to do that through realizing that He alone can atone for our sins. Lastly, our final point as we come towards the end. We see that God's glory will be displayed in all the earth. Verse 19, the end of it. O Lord, give heed and take action. For your own sake, O my God, do not delay. Because your city and your people are called by your name. Here Daniel uses the term Lord It's not the one that refers to his covenant name. Rather, this is the one that refers to his title as master. He is master over all. And in using this term, he is emphasizing uh, the absolute dominion of God over the whole earth. He is in control, he is sovereign, he is above all peoples, all their affairs. Everything that happens, and that's the God who he's praying to. And Daniel has in mind here the watching world, the pagan nations in his prayer. He's thinking about what they would look upon and see, what they would think when they saw. Daniel's main concern is the glory of God in this prayer. He wanted God to be glorified among the nations, not just Israel. His burden for the glory of God extended to the ends of the earth. And as God is elevated in his heart, in his mind, he also wanted him to be praised and glorified by all. He wanted people to see God for who he was. He wanted God to be rightly reverenced. So Daniel pleads that the Lord would do this. Also, he says, for his own sake and not delay. Oh God, don't let the nations think wrongly of you for another minute. Don't let this continue any longer, God. Daniel wanted to act... Uh, God wanted God to act in a way that the world would look upon it and they would praise him. They would see his works and they would praise him. They would fear him. And all that centered on your city and your people who are called by your name. The people were to be a living testimony to the world around them, a living witness of the greatness and the glory of their God. While they were scattered among the nations, their witness was in shamble and they brought dishonor upon their calling. Daniel desired to see them restored in worshiping God from Jerusalem as a testimony to the world. Do you consider this aspect in your prayers? Do you think about glorifying God through your sanctification to a watching world? Your holiness to a watching world so that you wouldn't cause the enemies of God to blaspheme? Daniel thought about that. And if you do that, that evidence is that you're driving, the driving force in your prayer is God's glory. Prior, prayer is not primarily about us. It's not about us. It's about God. It's about His glory. This whole prayer, this whole petition, Daniel wants to see God glorified. He wants to see God's name lifted up. And as we've considered this wonderful prayer Have you noticed the elements of the gospel in it? Have you seen them throughout? I tried to highlight them a little bit. Have these aspects of Daniel's prayer struck a chord with you because you found yourself praying them at one time, asking God for salvation? Or when you fell in sin saying, Lord, restore me again. You've prayed this prayer essentially. This is a gospel prayer. This is the most New Testament, Old Testament prayer ever. This is a Christ-centered prayer. And even though he's not explicitly named in this prayer, his person and his work under, under, uh, lays the foundation of the efficacy of this prayer. As we will see in the upcoming weeks, immediately following this prayer, is going to receive the revelation of the 70-week prophecy in which it's going to tell about the Messiah who would come and be cut off to finish transgression, make an end of sin, atone for iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. This is a Christ-centered prayer. This is a gospel-oriented prayer. And I want to close with my favorite sermon illustration of all time. It comes from Dr. Sinclair Ferguson. You might know him. He, was, he is the well-known um, Scottish preacher. We actually had him out at the Puritans Conference last year when we hosted it. And in this illustration, Dr. Ferguson likened the gospel from the TARDIS from the BBC show, the BBC show Doctor Who. Now, you might be familiar with BBC and Doctor Who. I don't know why you would. We're Americans. So we fought a war, so we don't have to watch BBC. <laughs> but if you do, you like really cheesy TV shows, then you might know of Doctor Who, who was a time-traveling alien. And he goes across the galaxy on a spaceship, which is called the TARDIS. And from the outside, the TARDIS looked like a police call box that was common, commonly found on the streets of London many years ago. And it was just that. It was a three-by-three, dark blue phone booth that said police on the side. It gave you direct access to them in case of emergency. And although in the show, the TARDIS looked just like a police call box from the outside, on the inside, it's infinitely bigger. There's no end to the room that you found inside this TARDIS. And every time somebody entered into it for the first time in the show, they always had the same response. It's so much bigger on the inside. There's no end to it. It's so big. That's what they all said. And Dr. Ferguson likened the gospel today. He said, from the outside, the gospel looks plain. It looks simple. You could sum it up in a couple sentences. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he died and was buried and he raised three days later according to the scriptures. It's so simple. Even a kid can know it. But once you enter into the reality of the gospel, oh, aren't you left saying it's so much bigger on the inside? It's so much greater than I could ever could have imagined. There's no end to the glories and the wonders of what God has done for me in the gospel. But you need to be inside that reality. Going on, (laughs) he's expanding in this sermon illustration. Dr. Ferguson expands upon the glories of the gospel truth. And he says in a very Scottish manner, Oh, doesn't it just flatten you? (laughs) Yes. Yes, it does. The gospel absolutely flattens me. All I can do is fall on my face and praise the glory of his grace. When I think about Daniel's prayer, when I think about the gospel truths, I think about I've sinned against such a great God, the most high God, and that my sin rightly deserves his anger and wrath. But in his righteousness, he made and upheld a covenant on my behalf. And that for the sake of his name, he was gracious to me, not based on any righteousness found in me but solely upon his abundant compassion. And that he did for me what he alone could do. And he atoned for my sin. And in the end, he's going to be glorified in my salvation, in my sanctification when I'm made like Christ. The world is going to look on and see his beauty and his saints. And his praise, his glory is going to fill the earth. I'm utterly flattened by this truth and so should you. Let us learn from this wonderful prayer how we can pray entirely for God's glory. Let us meditate on these truths and fill them. Let our hearts be filled with this so that we can exalt and magnify the glory of our great God. Let's pray. Lord, there is no one like you. You are a great God, strong and mighty, delivering the weak, those who call upon you and depend upon you, not based on any righteousness found in them, not based on any goodness in them, because there is none. You graciously provide your favor. You graciously provide your forgiveness and your deliverance. Lord, you do what no one else can do. We trust you. We look to you. We cling to you. And God, we long for the day when the world will look to you and see you for who you are. And every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, a name that's above every name. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. We thank you for you, for saving us, bringing us into union with yourself. May you fill our hearts with these truths as we go throughout the week, and be glorified in and through us, in Jesus' name, amen.